notion, I think, in the in the scientific community now is, is sustainability is being able to pass on an asset cluster as valuable for our kids as the ones we inherited from our parents. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today, we're joined by HKS professor Bill Clark, co-author of Pursuing Sustainability, A Guide to the Science and Practice. Professor Clark, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here. I think we're all familiar with the idea of sustainability, um, but can you describe how it's grown into its own field of scientific research? So sustainability is an idea that's been around presumably since farmers figured out they needed to fallow fields and hunters figured out they couldn't shoot everything in the forest. But the modern idea as a as a as a goal of society bubbled up uh, in the late 1980s through a thing called the Brundtland Commission, World Commission on Environment and Development, that had in its previous incarnations had looked at issues of security and poverty alleviation concluded that you couldn't do those unless you also tended to the environmental underpinnings of the enterprise. So a thing called the Brundtland Report, they came out with this canonical concept of what we were trying to do, which was provide for prosperity for the present without achieving that prosperity at the cost of prosperity in either the future or in your neighbors whose yards you dirtied up by throwing your junk into them. Mm Um, there was very little science involved in that. Um, uh, Ms. Brindlin picked a group of political leaders. She said, we need to get on their agendas first. But especially in the last 20 years, uh, science has really been stepping up to take this from a vague idea into a well-defined, implementable, researchable field. I think when I hear sustainability, the first thing I think of is global climate change. Obviously, that's a, uh, a something that needs to be addressed through sustainable efforts, but it, sustainability really hits much farther than climate change. Uh, yeah, I think as it's presently understood in not only the scientific community, but in reports by the UN, the World Bank, the OECD, uh, we now see sustainability as a is a challenge of managing the underlying assets, the base on which societies draw to furnish their well-being. And that certainly involves environment, uh, maintaining a supportive climate, decent soils, decent water, so forth and so on. Uh, But it also involves the other obvious things of our our manufactured capital assets, our buildings and roads, Mm -hmm. uh, our human capital, people who aren't being poisoned by the world around them, uh, social capital, the uh, norms and regulations that we use to keep ourselves from wrecking each other's lives, uh, and a bundle of knowledge capital, which is the discoveries, the inventions, the ideas we have. And the notion, I think, in the in the scientific community now is, is sustainability is keeping the social value of that cluster of assets from declining through time. Mm-hmm. That is, being able to pass on an asset cluster as valuable for our kids as the ones we inherited from our parents. Mm-hmm. So what's happened in the last couple of decades that there's been such a boom in this field? Uh, good question. Um, <laughs> I think the urgency of breaking free of business as usual practice has become more and more evident. Uh, I think back in the 80s, we got 
clobbered by the first realizations of things like stratospheric ozone depletion, uh, skin cancers, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, climate change began coming more and more onto people's agendas. Uh, we saw world fisheries collapsing, so on and so on. Uh, but I think as importantly, business communities began to see that their own supply chains, their abilities to be credible partners in different parts of the world was suffering from the unintended, but certainly not prevented, uh, damages they were doing to the support structures that let people improve their own lives in those areas. Mm -hmm. So it was a concatenation of things. I think, again, this, this Brundtland Commission in the late 80s was a catalytic event, pushed then by a series of international conferences, conventions, and so on. And the scientific community, slowly but surely, began to step up and began to try to move beyond simply better pollution technologies on the one hand, uh, more uh, environmentally benign agricultural practices on another, to begin to knit together a coherent field mm -hmm. of work, mm -hmm. uh, a body of theory, a body of measurements, uh, a body of experiments, which really has been a, a phenomenon of the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe sustainability science right now in the 21st century? Um, it's a problem-driven science rather than a blue-sky research science. It's a problem-driven science like agricultural science or health science would be. Mm -hmm. It's driven to obtain an actual end. Uh, it increasingly recognizes that it needs to go beyond individual siloed disciplines. That's both in its research. It can't just be ecology or just be engineering technologies that lower pollution or political scientists uh, studying the world of common pool resource management. Rather that those need to be integrated together, again, with the goal of managing this pool of assets so that their social value increases through time rather than decreases. Mm -hmm. But that means essentially nobody, certainly nobody of my generation was trained to be a sustainability scientist. I trained as an ecologist. Uh, my co-authors in this book, one trained as a political scientist, uh, one as a chemist. Mm -hmm. um, we all are sort of coming in feeling our leg of the elephant that nobody quite can describe, but beginning to get a sketch collaboratively of the outlines of the elephant and some of its physiology and mm -hmm. how it works and so on. Uh, but there's still a lot of gray areas. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot written about sustainability, the various, uh, I guess, specific um, uh, practices within the field. Uh, what inspired you and your co-authors to write this specific book? Yeah. So Indeed, we had even contributed to some of these things in sustainable agriculture or sustainable urbanization or sustainable energy systems. And all that stuff is hugely important. It's the nuts and bolts of how you actually change how we produce energy, how we produce food to get things done. But what we found was that, uh, by and large, this continued the siloing of uh, expertise and of experience in these areas and was not paying attention to the interactions. So what we wanted to do was not substitute for the sustainability engineering books or sustainable agriculture books, but rather provide a short, accessible, but authoritative piece that would show how those different 
particulars connect together, draw on the same body of underlying principles, need the same sets of underlying data, mm -hmm. and in fact can offer huge areas of complementarity, learning from one another, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, we were all teachers. We all were trying, struggling to teach this stuff and found that though we could get the details, what we couldn't get was the overarching framework in which to put it. Mm -hmm. Who do you envision being the people who are going to read this? Well, we titled the book Pursuing Sustainability not entirely arbitrarily. That is, uh, we saw this as written for people, whether they are academic scholars or uh, Kennedy School graduates uh, or business leaders, mm -hmm who see in one way or another trying to contribute positively to the goals of sustainable development, prosperity today without impoverishing the future or our neighbors mm -hmm. as part of what they need to do and that they are developing their own special areas of contribution, whether that's in political leadership or running a company or doing basic biology research, but they want the bubble. They want to see who their neighbors are in this, uh, what kinds of insights they're getting, who they might have to collaborate with. Mm -hmm. So this is done as an introductory, accessible guide to all those folks. I'm using it right now to teach an undergraduate class. I've used it for uh, teaching executive training for mid-career professionals. Um, we know we've got a lot of uptake by it in the business community of people presumably not wanting to read it cover to cover, but to look at it enough and then hand it down to their staff and say, read this and come back and talk to me. Mm -hmm. So if there are people out there who are interested in sustainability or pursuing some kind of uh, sustainable goal, where do they start? What, what do you prescribe for them? Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like a cheap answer, but it's start where you are. Uh, one of the, I think, exciting things to me about the field is I've grown out of just being a biologist coming into this, you know, being green and liking beasts, uh, was to learn to appreciate how essential it is that I be working with people who are trained in law, that I be working with practitioners who know how to run a supply chain in a business, uh, that I end up working with economists who actually can help me think through how we would rationalize and evaluate trade-offs. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we need to get away from the notion that there is somehow a sustainability expert out there um, and that that's a little ghetto of people someplace else. Mm -hmm. uh, and rather that this is a collaborative activity across disciplines within scholarship, across the normal divide between practitioners, people learning from doing it in the field, uh, and scholars learning by what you can do in a laboratory or library. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, I tell my students, it really doesn't matter where you start. It learns that you develop an, uh, a feel for the necessity of working with people like you coming in from complementary perspectives, mm -hmm. practical or academic. Mm -hmm. Even even within the context of our conversation here, sustainability is kind of hard to pin down, and I think that might be necessary because the field is so uh, broad in in what it entails. Um, but how how does this actually get applied? For example, um, we're now into the second round of the UN system, uh, publishing every two years a thing called the Inclusive Wealth Report. 
in which instead of ranking countries by their GNP for just how are you doing, mm -hmm. um, they rank them by a first approximation of the value of this asset pool. That is taking account not just of their buildings and roads uh, or the, how educated their populations are, but that plus the state of their natural capital, how well they've done it at uh, conserving the values of their soils and their air quality and so on, uh, and their institutional and knowledge capital. And so the Inclusive Wealth Report ranks countries by these, shows in the current very approximate version that 40% more or less of the world's countries seem to be on trajectories that are uh, on course to hand their kids a set of assets to build their own view of a good life from that's better than what they got from their own parents, mm -hmm. whereas 60% are not. That is, are actually on their present trajectory is going to be handing on um, a set of assets that are depleted and degraded, looking across nature, manufacturing capital, mm -hmm. human capital, relative to what they got from their parents. Mm -hmm. And within that, we begin to know why. You know, what are the sources of this degradation? Mm -hmm. Surely some of it is about nature. Some of it is about failing to keep investing in research and development so that you're working with pesticides that now have uh, most of the bugs you were trying to kill with them are resistant to it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, simply, you're not on the cutting edge of areas of drugs and so on that you would want to be. Mm -hmm. um, so at that macro level of beginning to say it's not just GNP that we should be evaluating how we're doing as countries by. Mm -hmm. and, and we've made some real steps forward. Lots of stuff still to be done, lots of data we don't have, but that's an improvement. Mm -hmm. Various companies are doing the same thing. We're beginning to put Harvard on a, on a foothold of evaluating its own contributions within that now theory-defined but practically implemented framework. Mm -hmm. Are there, oh, sorry. Well, and then at the absolute other end of the scale, there are just you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of practical cases of people trying to improve their own livelihoods, but do so with more attention to what the downstream effects, that is later on effects for their children's generation might be. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, we now see increasingly in the agricultural sector in the developing world, instead of pushing to North American monocropping, mixed agroforestry things that, that put you with a little deck of trees and then some bushes under it and under that some ground level vegetables that integrate together to be pretty robust to droughts, require fewer pesticides, so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. In the chemistry sector, uh, we come out of the you know, narrow escape with disaster with ozone depletion, which if we hadn't caught it in time by having, you know, just appallingly good monitoring facilities and so on, um, would have really been an exceptionally dangerous phenomenon for civilization mm -hmm. to a just generic move towards green chemistry, replacing those, you know, horrible smelling organic solvents with water-based or or carbon dioxide-based solvents. Much of your dry cleaning, if anybody does dry cleaning anymore, is now not done by horrible, stinky organic solvents that mm -hmm. then pollute and are carcinogens in the water supply, but by aqueous or, or essentially carbonated water solvents. Right. So right across the spectrum, there are 
little things and very big things being mm-hmm. done. I imagine there is, since this touches a lot of industrial uh, production, there is a lot of will on some on the part of some uh, businesses to try and make whatever they're doing uh, sustainable in the long run, but also pushback uh, because there are certain uh, very profitable businesses that don't lend themselves to uh, sustainability. Yeah. Um, how do people manage that that uh, constant struggle? Well, so first, both of what you say are true. Um, there are companies, just as there are individuals, who seem to have uh, no perspective beyond feathering their own nest for tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. There are companies, as there are individuals, who have been incredibly uh, foresightful in how they've gone about this, that they uh, they in in my experience, quite formally and quite sincerely mean to leave a business to their kids or their kids' generation, which they can be proud of, which is doing good in the world as well as doing good for the family or the company. So the whole spectrum is there. That said, uh, I think it would be uh, rosy to the uh, extent of irresponsibility not to recognize that sustainable development is at its core an extraordinarily uh, extraordinary redistributive agenda. That is, it, it it's there as an agenda because too often we are feathering our own local nests here and now at the expense of the countries or the people who we throw the junk to or future generations who we throw the junk to. Mm-hmm. Thus, trying to fix that, make the distribution of, of the capacity, the asset stock, to have each place and each generation have comparable assets to advance their own well-being means a redistribution. It means telling people they can't do some of the things they're doing right now because it is so unjust Mm -hmm. in the garbage it dumps on other people somewhere else or somewhere in the future, and that they've got to figure out either different ways to do the same thing that are less damaging or cease and desist. Mm -hmm. What that means that the sustainability is, despite the fact that I'm an academic, it is ultimately a in the streets revolutionary agenda. Uh, Marcia Sen calls the need being for uh, informed agitation. The agitation because you've got to break the status quo and present trends for many countries, many companies, many individuals. The informed because we, the scientists, need to be serving up to those frontline agitators, whether they're running in politics or in reform efforts inside businesses or whatever, we need to be serving up to them the tools, the data, the evaluations of alternative strategies Mm -hmm. uh, that let them push in the right places. Does achieving this require uh, public policy measures to incentivize, uh, you know, not in, in your terminology, not dumping on other people for, uh, you know, building your own nest? Um, what it surely requires is people collaborating with each other, working with one another to achieve as a group what they can't achieve as individuals. We all know the tragedy of the commons sort of arrangement. If we all just graze the amount of sheep that would be best for us, there's not going to be any grazing left. So um, I'm being a little cagey on this because it does require cooperation. Mm -hmm. Whether that cooperation 
best comes from self-organized social groups, as we've certainly seen in, in especially small, intense resource use societies, or the main lobster fishery or whatever, mm -hmm. or requires degrees of public governance intervention, that is a top-down component, I think very much depends on the case at hand. Mm -hmm. If I look broadly across instances where we've made progress, I think the most common mode is, is dual. That is, it is self-organizing from below, within a company, within a community, within a fishery, but complemented by a set of rules, norms, arrangements, monitoring systems from above that help provide incentives like a carbon tax, help provide monitoring as say we're now doing from satellites in Amazonia and so on. So you can say, well, we know you meant to stop deforestation, but look, it's still happening over here. Mm -hmm. Somebody go do something about that, right? right. Um, it is those sorts of complementarities. It certainly does not mean global governance, whatever that would be, um, but it does mean governing the global characteristics, uh, the global problems, challenges that come up uh, in the sustainability domain. Uh, and yeah, it's hard to imagine not doing that without formal agreements among states, among states and corporations and so on. I'm kind of curious about uh, some of the the failures, I guess uh, I would call them, in this field. I mean, there was one I think you highlighted about ethanol in in gasoline. Now, there's there's a situation where you had oil industry that it was doing very well for itself, um, and also you had farmers who wanted to grow corn, uh, and you had the U.S. government subsidizing it in order to produce that something that was ostensibly supposed to be more sustainable than just oil on its own, but didn't exactly work out that way. Yeah, you had the whole arrangement aided and abetted by people like me, um, people who had studied ecology and growing of biofuels and so on and so on, and said, wow, isn't this fabulous? We're going to, we're going to go green instead of brown or black with our fuel sources. And what we had done was let the rhetoric get in the way of the analysis. And what we now know, sadly, is that if you're growing biofuels in, say, conditions of Brazil with a great deal of sunshine, a lot of water, and so on, so you're growing sugarcane, uh, you can do it with minimal fertilizer. It's still pretty brutal stuff for the people who harvest it, but uh, you can do it profitably, you can do it as a great substitute for uh, fossil fuels, mm -hmm. and it works. It's a net lower emissions, positive benefit to the economy, positive benefit to the environment, and so on. If you try to do that same trick, which is what we did here, by fertilizing uh, biofuels uh, as corn in the corn belt, uh, then it turns out that your net carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas accounts are negative. You actually, if you have to build the, f you, know, you have to build the fertilizers, you have to run the tractors, da, 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 you end up generating more carbon dioxide, more greenhouse gases from producing the biofuels than you do for not using the fuels, da, 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 da. Right. And we should have seen that coming. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a source of shame to my own community that we jump so on board, the green's got to be better. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly, it, I imagine there were some lessons learned that could be applied towards future uh, situations. 
one would hope. It was like, don't be so stupid <laughs> next time. Um, I think maybe the more sobering part to many of us was, okay, so we, as the scientific world, were three years late in sort of sorting through, and it took the price shocks of having, you know, driven up the price of food, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. having food riots. And we said, oh, gee, maybe we didn't think this through. So we said, okay, now we've thought it through. Um, newsflash, bad idea, go back. And of course, by then, a political constituency for the government, right. your and my tax money subsidies mm -hmm. uh, to grow biofuels had grown up to be so big that what was intellectually reversible, because we actually did the numbers right, mm -hmm. turned out not to be practically reversible. And all you need to do right. is look at the last wretched rounds of, of, the, uh, of the primary season. Right. It's become a third rail. <laughs> right. So one more reason why uh, I'm, I'm deeply convinced that people like me, coming in as a biologist, uh, need to learn more political economy. Um, and uh, I could tell the other stories, but they'd be meaner about how the political economists need to learn some biology and so mm. on. Mm. So I think in the long run, what we understand is that nothing we do to try to move current trajectories towards more sustainable ones works everywhere and forever. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not smart enough. These are really complicated systems when you put in just you know all of nasty nature and then inventive people who strategize and invent new stuff and change their values, you're always gonna get it wrong. Mm -hmm. So the question is not you know, turning this into a think it through for 10 more years of study before you do anything. It's doing stuff and paying real attention to two different items. The first is being very clear what you're trying to accomplish and putting out decent monitoring and observation that lets you know what actually is happening instead of what you intended to happen. Mm -hmm. um, the second is building in reversibility where you can. Mm -hmm. That means having biologists be more sensitive to what will happen when there's a political constituency for mm -hmm. biofuels. Uh, it means biasing your big manufactured capital investments to things that other things being equal are not big hydro projects or nuclear things that have a 60, 80 year time scale attached to them, mm -hmm. but to stuff where if you get it wrong, you can reverse course, pick up a different technology, retire this one and not have huge sunk assets. Mm -hmm. That's not always possible, but it says to build reversibility, build robustness so that your whole system doesn't collapse when you get it wrong, which you will. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty different set of design principles. It's not pushing for optimality for tomorrow morning. Uh, it's pushing for the long run, for adaptability, for monitoring, for treating policy interventions really as, or technology interventions as experiments that we have to see where they'll lead, hope we can patch up the bad parts, capitalize on the good ones, uh, and live to fight the next day. <laughs> Well, uh, Professor Bill Clark is co-author of Pursuing Sustainability, A Guide to the Science and Practice from Princeton Press. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Professor Clark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Laura Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. 
You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.